0: Jay Willis knows how you might be feeling this week. It's the start of another Supreme Court term. And if you're like him, you're thinking, these guys again?
1: I mean, yeah, I think for for people anywhere on the left side of the political spectrum, there's no such thing really as like a good Supreme Court term or a Supreme Court win. It's only just like, how much do you lose and how quickly?
0: Jay edits a site called Balls and Strikes. His whole job is to chronicle what the nine justices are up to. For a progressive like him, he says, the thing to know is that this term is going to be a little harder to explain than usual. There is not a case that's going to upend the right to abortion or take down a president's student debt relief plan.
1: This term does look a little less splashy, but that is not to say that this term is any less important or that the potential for harm this term is any less likely. It just means that the conservative supermajority is sort of going about this work in a different way that is going to attract less public attention and less media attention.
0: You can get a flavor for the kinds of decisions the court's being asked to hand down this first week. Tuesday, Justices hear arguments in a case that seeks to eliminate an entire government agency, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Conservative activists are hoping that, like Republicans in Congress who are eager to slash spending, the Supremes will feel fine simply erasing an arm of the federal bureaucracy, along with the jobs and protections that that bureaucracy created. Is there a larger project that's kind of obvious in the cases this year of eliminating the administrative state? Or even just paring it down?
1: Yeah, I think that's the big through line of the term. That is one of the conservative legal movement's longest running projects, eliminating the ability of federal agencies to make rules.
0: There is one case in this vein that truly stands out. It has the wonkish name of Loper Bright Enterprises v. Raimondo. It's going to be argued a little later in the term it seeks to roll back a precedent known as chevron deference. All this may sound like gobbledygook to you. It did to me. But Jay says its impact could be monumental.
1: If the result comes down that conservatives have been pushing for for decades, most of the executive branch will no longer be able to execute the laws that Congress has passed. Uh, a decision in this case could bring a lot of the day to day functioning of the federal government to a grinding halt.
0: That's, that's a lot. That's very yeah, dramatic. It's, it's,
1: it's very dramatic.
0: Today on the show, how a single Supreme Court case this term, brought by some New England fishermen, could throw the federal government into chaos. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next? Stick around. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. To understand what makes this upcoming case at the Supreme Court so important, we actually have to go back to 1984. That's when the court heard a different case, Chevron v. the Natural Resources Defense Council. That case established something known as Chevron deference. It's a precedent that's become super important to the federal judiciary. I asked Jay Willis to explain.
1: When Congress passes laws, it does so in general terms, right? And it delegates the authority for executing the law to the executive branch, to agencies. So Congress will pass the Clean Air Act saying that clean air is good and we should have clean air.
0: And then the EPA comes in and says, and here's how we do that.
1: Correct. Which makes some intuitive sense, right? who do you want setting emission standards? Lauren Boebert or some scientists, right? (laughs) Like I'm gonna take the scientists here. Now, sometimes people will challenge agency rules. And when those challenges end up in court, Chevron deference says that if an agency's interpretation of its own authority is reasonable, we the court will defer to the agency.
0: Because those guys are the experts, the agencies.
1: Right. All of these judges are, you know, 70 years old and majored in classics and English during like the Johnson administration. Like they don't know (laughs) how to do this. The experts at the EPA do. So that's what Chevron deference is.
0: So how does Chevron deference fit in with this case? The justices will hear this term. Loper Bright Enterprises. Like tell me the story of this case and how Chevron deference comes into it.
1: This case is, it arises out of a dispute about, stay with me, folks, uh, federal regulation of fishing off the coast of New England. So federal uh, a federal agency monitors fishing to prevent overfishing. And as part of this, they actually send monitors, send people out on some of these boats to ensure that the fishing companies uh, aren't taking too much fish out of the ocean. Part of this regulation is that the fishing companies have to help the government foot the bill for the salaries of the monitors that are on their boats. Fishing companies don't like this. You'll be shocked to learn. Uh, they say it reduces their uh, their annual returns by about
0: 20%. Which is not small. That's that's a real that's a real hit.
1: It, that, that's a hit. Um, uh, Yes. But if you're already losing interest like I get it, and also this is exactly what the conservative activists who are behind this case want, because it's a direct challenge to Chevron deference. They are asking the court to not defer to the agency's interpretation of its own rule, which lets them put the monitors on the ships. And it's part of this recent trend of the court not just issuing big decisions and sort of the culture war cases, you know, abortion, affirmative action, things like that, but also reserving for themselves, for unelected, life-tenured judges and justices, the power to overrule the democratically elected branches whenever these branches make decisions with which the judges and justices personally disagree.
0: Okay, so in this Loper Bright case, the question at hand seems kind of small. Can the federal government charge some fishermen to monitor what they're up to? But because the case relies on this precedent chevron deference, ruling in favor of the fishermen could actually have a huge impact. There are 19,000 federal court cases that rely on chevron deference. It's kind of hard to overstate what a big deal it would be if it went away. But there are signs that the justices are ready to act here, because they've been chipping away at chevron deference already. One lawyer told Politico chevron deference has been in a coma for a while, but the Supreme Court may be about to take it off life support.
1: So if, if Chevron deference is in a coma, it's Neil Gorsuch who put it there. Huh. The last couple of years, there have been a few big cases at the Supreme Court that have dealt with something called the major questions doctrine. Uh, Neil Gorsuch in particular, big fan of the major questions doctrine, which says that if there's sort of a policy issue where the court decides that uh, this is too big a deal, for agencies to make a decision that the court doesn't have to defer to the agency. It can sort of ignore Chevron deference. This came up uh, in West Virginia EPA, I believe that was 2022, which limited the EPA's authority to regulate emissions from power plants. The way I'm thinking about the end of Chevron deference is it's like the minor questions doctrine. (laughs) Going forward, a court wouldn't be able to step in only if the issue is major. They could take up any question, any agency rule that they disagree with, that they don't think is reasonable. Uh, They could step in and strike down a rule or limit the agency's ability to even issue them. The major questions doctrine percolated for a long time, especially in sort of conservative legal academic circles. And I can't stress enough how made up this is. There's no constitutional support for the idea that like, Brett Kavanaugh gets to say, this is consequential and this isn't.
0: One of the things that makes this upcoming case that takes aim at Chevron deference important is that I believe lower courts could also question what the government is doing. Like, it's not just the Supreme Court that could come in and say like, hey, we don't like how you're doing it here. It's that lower courts could also say, listen, you know, this, the executive branch doesn't have the authority here. Is that so?
1: Yeah, I mean, all of, the, all of the cases about Chevron deference that end up before the Supreme Court start in a lower court somewhere, uh, a challenge to a rule in federal district court. And what's going to happen if we end Chevron deference is you're just going to have a slew of litigation in courthouses across the country challenging a rule and inviting the judge presiding over it uh, to not defer to the agency and to exercise the judge's his or hers own sort of opinion about whether or not a rule is reasonable.
0: That seems so chaotic. Like, if you lead an agency, what decisions can you make?
1: I mean, I think that's exactly the point. That's exactly the what the conservative legal movement wants here, as that litigation winds its way through court you know you could have uh court orders that you know that freeze rules while the litigation unfolds so if you're the head of the agency at any time like a rule that you depend on to do your job could disappear either forever or maybe temporarily while litigation unfolds it is going to be a tremendous time and resource suck on these agencies it is going to devastate their ability to just do like the day-to-day work of government, of making this country happen.
0: So what's the argument for nuking Chevron
2: deference? That, after the break. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance.
0: wrote a spirited editorial basically cheering on the death of Chevron deference in this case. What's the conservative case here? Basically, what they were arguing was like, listen, you know, we've seen it with COVID vaccine mandates. We've seen it with people trying to keep people in their houses with the eviction moratorium after COVID. There's all this executive overreach, and that's what we're trying to get rid of here.
1: Yeah, I mean, that is always the conservative framing of issues like this, that big government is doing too much and intruding into your life and just making you wear a seatbelt when you want to get on the highway without one and see what happens. Like the conservative framing of this stuff is that it's restoring the proper balance of the separation of powers among the three branches of government. Like every Wall Street Journal editorial on the subject sounds like a high school civics essay. The reality is that getting rid of Chevron deference would ensure that the government won't work at all.
0: It kind of reminds me of um, an episode of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, where (laughs) the people at the bar try to have a bar with no rules because they think it'll be cool. We will open up patties as the most American bar in all of America, a place with absolute freedom. With no gambling restrictions. Yeah, sure, whatever. But then it like turns into a nightmare because when you have a place with no rules, that's what happens. It's like a nightmare place because there are no rules. I, I just I don't know if like anyone in the conservative project has considered
1: that. Yeah, I mean, famously Grover Norquist, right? The conservative activist said
2: that I don't want to abolish government. I simply want to reduce it to the size where I could drag it into the bathroom and drown it in the bathtub.
1: If we get rid of Chevron deference, like that is what is going to happen is this massive federal government apparatus that sets rules for uh, the air you breathe, the water you drink, the, uh, the materials that go into your home and your car and everywhere around you. That is not going to be able to do its job anymore.
0: Is there a place that does this better? Like, is there any argument that the way we're doing this right now, it is complicated and it it may seem arbitrary to you uh, if you're on the receiving end of some change of rules that you didn't see coming. And so actually there's a different way to do it. But maybe nuking this isn't the best way.
1: Absolutely. Like federal agencies get stuff wrong, just like anyone else gets stuff wrong but there is a way to push back against federal agency rules that you don't like, um, right? Like these are all subject to notice and comment. Like you can challenge them in court. The issue is not that federal agencies are perfect and and, their word is inviolate. It's that allowing individual federal judges in courthouse across the country to become the ultimate arbiters of what stands and what falls is decidedly not a better way of doing this.
0: Well, I guess we can kind of see in some ways a taste, a little preview of how chaotic things might be when you look at just stuff that's happened over the last year. Like we had this judge in Texas, Matthew Kasmerick, he said, "Okay, well, we can't be selling mifepristone around the country." And It raises this question of like, hold it. Are we opening up a spigot of a lot more rulings like that, where one judge somewhere actually impacts a whole lot of us?
1: I I mean, I think that's exactly right, right? Like, it's a great illustration of what this chaos could look like in practice. In that Mifepristone case, you've got this one Trump judge, like a former conservative blogger who is jumping on like, Google and Wikipedia and looking at Mifepristone and saying, Yeah, I don't think the Food and Drug Administration acted reasonably here. So I don't think this medication, which has been in use for two decades, uh, I don't think this should be allowed anymore. Like, no normal person looks at that and thinks that that is the way that we should be running government.
0: You know, I look back at some of the cases the Supreme Court has taken on over the last little bit. And I think of a case like Dobbs, which overturned Roe v. Wade. Everyone sort of knew what was at stake with that case. But with this case this year, I don't think I mean, you can't you just can't compare Chevron deference to abortion. You know, like they just don't live in the same universe of in my mind.
1: It's a really hard headline to write. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Do you get the sense that there's any kind of public awareness of what's about to happen here?
1: I do think it's difficult for journalists to concisely convey the stakes of this in the same way that's like, Dubs, your right to reproductive autonomy could go away. And I think this, this case and this movement to defang the government sort of fits in with the broader conservative legal project about like why they worked so hard and invested so much time and resources to take control of the federal judiciary. The conservative policy platform is broadly unpopular. Like, people do not agree with Dobbs. People do not agree with Bruen, the case that limited government's ability to limit the right to carry a firearm in public. But controlling the federal judiciary allows conservative judges to sort of recast these unpopular policy preferences as just like what the law requires. You know, this, this neutral process, we're just doing our job here, we're calling balls and strikes, this isn't political. And I think these cases about hamstringing the agencies are like the last sort of piece of that because it gives the judges power going forward. Now, if there's an executive action that they don't like, you know, they can, they can step in and say, hey, we have some thoughts about this, and we do not agree with it. It's sort of, you know, they got rid of the right to bodily autonomy. They got rid of affirmative action. Now getting rid of Chevron deference, it's not so much about Chevron deference in particular as it is all of the future policy areas where it will give unelected Republican judges control over the policymaking process.
0: One thing we saw happen last term is that the justices occasionally seem to moderate their rulings in a few cases. Like they didn't go ham everywhere that they could have. So is there a version of a ruling on this case that limits bureaucratic power but doesn't obliterate it? And would that be a good thing?
1: Taking those questions in reverse order, it would certainly be like a good thing. Anything less than Chevron deference disappearing would be like, a better outcome than chevron deference disappearing. But I also do sort of worry about an outcome that really defangs chevron deference without getting rid of it, that pundits then cast as evidence that the Supreme Court is moderating. In terms of, like, what that ruling would look like, yeah, I'm sure that there's some sort of, like, fractured opinion that could preserve some husk of chevron deference without getting rid of it altogether, but it's just a matter of time, right? I think it was a Roberts opinion in 2019 um, where they could have really dealt a death blow to Roe, but instead he joined the liberal justices to keep it on life support. Once Amy Coney Barrett was confirmed, uh, didn't need Roberts' vote anymore, and you know, the rest is history. I think that sort of same framework could be applied here to what's going to happen to chevron deference. If it somehow survives this time, I don't think it will. But if it does, like there's just going to be another challenge, another vehicle challenging chevron deference that conservative activists bring next year or the year after. And eventually they are going to find the right combination of arguments that give whoever the holdout conservative is permission to say, Okay, now I'm ready. Let's do it.
0: Jay Willis, I am super grateful for your time and your reporting. Thanks for coming on the show.
1: Thanks for having me. Thanks for talking about fish. We should do this more often.
0: Jay Willis is the editor-in-chief of Balls and Strikes. And that's the show. If you're a fan of what we're doing here at What Next, the best way to support our work is to join Slate+. Plus. Go to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Anna Phillips, Paige Osborne, and Madeline Ducharme. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little help from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the senior director of podcast operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. Go track me down on Twitter. Say hello. I'm at Mary's desk. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.